Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Rice, and I'm CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are going to talk about chiropractic medicine, and let me share some stats with you. There are 70,000 chiropractors throughout the United States, and right now there are over 10,000 students getting an education to become chiropractors. 2,500 chiropractors join the workforce every single year. 35 million Americans take advantage of chiropractic medicine. And there are 40,000 chiropractic assistants throughout the United States. That's just some information for you uh, to think about as we start our journey today talking about chiropractic medicine. And my guest is Dr. Todd Stevenson, a local chiropractic physician and owner of Peak Performance Chiropractic. Welcome. Thanks for having me today. And disclosure here, everyone, um, Dr. Stevenson is my chiropractor. He's been my chiropractor for, uh, he just told me, over eight years. I didn't know it had been that long. And so I certainly am an advocate of chiropractic medicine. But this podcast is to help you become an advocate of chiropractic medicine and to understand what it is and how it can help you. So let's go back, Dr. Stevenson, to how long you've been in practice. I graduated chiropractic school. I went to Palmer College of Chiropractic West in San Jose. I graduated 2004, so I was licensed in 2005, so 15 years now. 15 years, mm-hmm. my goodness. And why did you choose chiropractic medicine as a career? As far back as I can remember, I always was interested in athletic training, sports medicine. So when I was looking at going to college, that's something I wanted to pursue with my degree. So I ended up choosing to come to school here partially due to family reasons, but also because they didn't have an athletic training department. So as I was going through school and I was getting closer to graduation, I was exploring other aspects of sports medicine. And so what really interested me was anatomy, physiology, kinesiology, which is a study of movement, exercise physiology. And a lot of that ties into chiropractic. And I didn't know that at the time. So one of the classes I was taking was an alternative medicine class. And just randomly, that was one of the reports I ended up doing over the course of that semester. So I toured a couple offices here in town while I was in school and really liked what the opportunities were within chiropractic, but also to kind of stay in that sports medicine realm. Um, I really liked the idea of opening my own business. So that was something that was very desirable to me. Well, let's talk about chiropractic medicine and what it what it does for people. And certainly when you're talking about how interested you are in sports, what what does that mean for somebody, and why would they come to you if, say, that they're a marathon runner? So I, I see a lot of runners, a lot of runners that come to me with injuries that they're trying to take care of on their own, but sometimes it's going to need more than what they're able to do. So it's the chiropractic treatment is often aimed at trying to address more of the things they can't control so that they can maintain some of the things that they're doing on their end. So well, That makes lot, sense. A lot of times they'll come in for foot, lower leg issues going on, and they're not even certain that it's coming from that area. And that's something where, you know, as we're working with patients, you realize that there's a lot more involved with what we call kinematic chain or movement chain. So it's really looking at bigger pictures, issues that, you know, it doesn't even have to be the spine per se, but it's one of the areas that really we start from and kind of work from. Well, that's interesting because I know I've come to you uh, 
for things that I think are about a certain part of my body and you adjust another part of my body and suddenly it takes away the pain from wherever that was. I find that absolutely fascinating because I could come in with an issue of my back and it's really not my back. And you and I've talked about that. I mean, it's, you know, we've talked about one leg being shorter than the other. Yeah. And, and that's just one of the few things we're looking at. And I, I try to explain to patients when they're in that it doesn't have to be so complicated. I mean, sure, the body is very, there's a lot to it and there's a lot to learn that we go through in our training. But when you're one-on-one with a patient, a lot of times it can be something where it can kind of just all of a sudden make sense to them. So going back to your question about a runner, you know, they may come in and say, all of a sudden I'm having this knee pain when I run, but I don't have a knee injury. What's going on? And then we start digging deeper into it and you realize that there's a lot more structural components that maybe aren't where the pain is, but it's the it's a big reason as to why they're experiencing discomfort. Well, chiropractic medicine has come a long way. I know that uh, it's mainstream. Uh, as I said in the statistics, there's 35 million Americans that go to a chiropractor. And but that's not been a quick journey for chiropractic medicine, I don't think. I think that probably years ago, uh, chiropractic medicine was thought as weird. And you go in and somebody just, uh, you know, crunches your bones or something and you shouldn't be going. Can you talk a little bit about the journey that chiropractic medicine's been on? Sure. Well, in school, I mean, we go over quite a bit of that history. And there's great textbooks that aren't necessarily exciting reading, but they explain some of the struggles they went through as far as battles between philosophically, how the American Medical Association would like patients to get treated for back pain versus what possibly chiropractic philosophical reasons would be to get treated for back pain. And that's merged quite a bit over the years. Um, I think there were some court cases, um, and without getting the specifics, back in the 80s where some of those some of those challenges were kind of overcome and you know when i got into the profession i was like i said i graduated in 2004 it's not really anything i've had to deal with in practice but there certainly were a lot of battles that were fought whether it was in a courtroom or whether it was just within the american public that a lot of people unfortunately still hold on to some of these beliefs that were you know and i ask patients before, a lot of times i say well if how do you have an opinion about chiropractic if you haven't been before? Right. And so a lot of it is hearsay. And unfortunately, a lot of those things that people have heard over the years are tied back to things that they've been heard. And it, you can track that back to a lot of when it was less mainstream. And unfortunately, there's a lot of education that people are getting now that they didn't get back then. Well, some, you know, what I've noticed, and I certainly could be wrong, that a lot of it has to do with the acceptance from the medical community, um, whether, and especially primary care or MDs, mm -hmm. and whether they feel that it's a, a viable modality for their patients, or whether they feel that um, that it's a threat to them. Mm -hmm. I had a naturopathic physician on a podcast a few weeks ago, and I think they're that modality, I think, is back where chiropractic medicine was probably a decade ago, trying to assume their position in the medical community. And so there were many people before you, uh, forerunners, that obviously paid the dues so that someone could have a successful practice today. For sure. And, and I'd say, when you say 10 years, I'd probably push it further back. I'd say 20, 30 years. 
because like I said, I mean, I've been 15 years in practice now. Yes. I, I did deal with some of yeah. that in the beginning, but I think a lot of that was more tied into just being young, coming out of school. Um, and where I feel at right now, you know, a lot of times when you're discussing things with patients, it's, there isn't, there isn't as much of a pushback from their primary doctors or their orthopedic doctors or even physical therapists. I mean, occasionally you run into that, but it seems to be a lot more of like everyone's trying to take more of a common ground approach. And ideally what you're trying to do is get the patient better. And so when it comes to in getting the patient better, as a first line of defense, chiropractic can actually get significant more results than having them relying on other aspects of care that maybe should be secondary. Right. And insurance companies are reimbursing now. Oh, for sure. I mean, there, there is, I have not come across an insurance company in a while that doesn't have some sort of chiropractic inclusion within their benefits. Well, when you think about it, there certainly are modalities, whether it's chiropractic medicine, physical therapy, to try first before somebody has extensive back surgery. Well, right. I mean, and, and that seems to be what most people are understanding these days. And that's a big part of, you know, what's changed over the last 20, 30 years is that more conservative approaches should be your first line of defense versus expecting to need surgery when you haven't tried every avenue that could potentially get rid of your symptoms or alleviate a lot of the symptoms. Well, especially when we have the opioid crisis that yeah. we have and the handing out of uh hydrocodone, oxycodone to somebody who's having back pain that maybe, maybe that the modality of chiropractic medicine could help them get off of uh, narcotic. Sure. And that's changed, especially in the last five years. That's been a big topic of discussion within chiropractic community with, you know, we have seminars where we're talking about educating people on that. And it has changed quite a bit. I mean, you can take, for example, um, VA programs. Now there's a lot more of a push to send patients for chiropractic care versus, like I said, even five, 10 years ago, that was not something that was even an option to them. So it was a lot more prescription medications and things like that. Right. Let's talk about the education aspect, especially for people who may be listening that haven't been to a chiropractor and are maybe um, thinking about it and they're wondering what kind of education a chiropractor has to go through. Mm -hmm. So Initially, you'll get your undergraduate degree and it's typically within a pre-med focus. So it doesn't mean that you have to have a specific degree, but it ha you do have to cover the protocols of their prerequisites for school. Mm -hmm. So it's very similar anatomy, physiology, physics, organic chemistry, all the things that you would typically have to check right. the boxes for to get into medical school. Um, after that, chiropractic school is a four-year graduate degree program. So you're looking, you know, it's eight years of schooling. And on top of that, while you're in school, you're also beginning the process of taking national board exams. That's how they accredit nationally. And is that four-year that you're talking about after the four years of college in a certain um, educational system? Is it a chiropractic school? Yes. Yeah, so well, there's 18 chiropractic schools in the country. So on the West Coast, there's five here. When I chose Palmer and San Jose, most of it was due to proximity since I'd done my undergraduate degree here. And I wanted to come back to Reno. So right. I wanted to be close to home. Right. Um, but most of the schools all have to follow the same protocols and regimen. And there's that's what makes them nationally certified. And the majority of schooling is preparing you for what I said before, these board exams. There's, there's four series to them. You begin them while you're in school. And when you get to the end, you take your fourth, which is pretty challenging test where you're it's it's you know, it's a four-hour exam where you're 
working with patients and you're being evaluated for every aspect of care. After you get through that part four exam, then depending on what state you choose to go to, there's a whole series, there's a series of tests specifically for state, a lot of it based on ethics and procedures particular to your state. Is part of that four years the internship or do you do the eight years and then an internship? Well, so, I mean, the four years of school, you're, there's, you could break it into three phases. So the beginning is a lot more, again, focusing on the anatomy, physiology, systems of the body, and getting that foundation really solidified, even though you may have had some of that in undergraduate. The second phase of schooling is a lot more technique and learning, patient interaction, aspects of clinic without physically being in the clinic yet. And then your last phase of school, so about the last year, year and a half, is when you start getting experience with patients and your, well, your first patients are your classmates. So we work on each other oh, a lot yeah. in school. <laughs> but when you transition from that to the clinic setting, they have student clinics that are kind of either on campus or within the vicinity of campus where you have to get a certain amount of time in with patients, treatments, obviously. And that's kind of, and then when you're finished with that, you have what's called your preceptor program. So preceptor is the very last phase of care. It's kind of like an internship would be for a medical doctor in a hospital. Not as long, but it gives you that actually physically in an office versus a student clinic. I really appreciate you going through all of that because it really lets people know how rigorous this is. And Mm -hmm. the reading that I did to get ready for the podcast uh, really said over and over that the training for a chiropractor is extremely rigorous Mm -hmm. and as rigorous as a medical physician uh, between all of the education, the internship, the preceptor, and uh, it's not a fly-by-night thing. No. It's not. No. And I'm assuming that to get the national accreditation uh, that somebody really needs to have studied and do what they need to do. Yeah, I mean, I look back on those days, and I'm glad I don't have to do them anymore, but it was a full-time job. I mean, when I was in chiropractic school, it was 30 to 40 hours a week of class, and then you've taken the clinic time, and that was, I mean, there was nothing else to do but chiropractic school for. Now, someone years. someone can't hang up, uh, put up a shingle and work anywhere without doing the national accreditation, or can they? No, they can't. That's fabulous. So that's what somebody should look for. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can ask for it. It should be on display in a chiropractor's mm-hmm. office. Yeah, I mean, the testing's changed over the years, too. I mean, I, I'm assuming there's some variance to even from when I took it back you know, 15, 16 years ago. But, you know, there's plenty of chiropractic physicians that have been practicing for 30 or 40 years. They may not have taken those same national board exams because they modify them based on just progression. So the schooling is obviously rigorous. Uh, Somebody that goes into chiropractic medicine, I would think, unless they were truly dedicated to the uh, to chiropractic medicine and wanted to practice it, just wouldn't make it through that much rigorous school. No, I mean, it certainly weeds out the... Yeah. I mean, in, I you know, I remember specifically there was people that were in school and they finished with me, but they never passed their board exams. So I don't yeah. think they're even... I mean, I don't know where they're at at this point in their sure. life, but that is if you don't actually take in everything you're learning and learn how to apply it within a clinical setting you're not going to get through those exams right. anyways. And this and this for people who are listening, this was for for you all to hear how rigorous it is to become a chiropractic physician and that it it takes a lot of commitment to do that and a real understanding what chiropractic medicine is. Let's talk about somebody who's never been to a chiropractor. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and they come in to see you, and let's say that they were referred uh, for neck pain, let's talk about their first visit a little bit and how, how you put somebody at ease and what you discuss with them. Sure. Well, in my office, I feel like approximately half of the new patients I see on a regular basis have never been to a chiropractor before. So a big part about the first visit is, number one, make the patients at ease and kind of explaining as well as I can so that they can understand what's going on structurally. It doesn't have to be that complicated. Granted, like I said before, there is a lot more complicated issues that can be going on, but you don't want to necessarily try to over overcomplicate things with them. So for me personally, and I would like to emphasize, there's a lot of different philosophical ways people treat new patients. And for me, like I said, I try to make it in ways where it's at least understandable to them. So when someone sits down with me the first time, we go over more of an extensive history of what's going on currently, possibly what's gone on in the past, a lot of what they do, whether it's the activities they do on a day-to-day basis, um, sports-wise, or whether they're just at a desk all day. And a lot of it is kind of just... Those initial tidbits I take is, and a lot of times going to the next phase of that before we start even the exam is I have a pretty decent idea of what's going on with them. Sure, because you see so many, so many patients and an understanding of some of the things in our daily lives that we deal with. Mm-hmm. I mean, sports, and we'll get back to that in just a minute, but also there's the daily life of sitting at a desk and looking at our phones has, so I'm curious, <laughs> have phones done something with chiropractic medicine because it seems to me <laughs> that well, has a job incurred injury. <laughs> I do. I, that's right. So uh, it seems to me that phones have created a whole new sure, thing yeah. with our bodies. And especially younger people too. You know, I, I, I do treat children, I mean, teenagers, kids, and you'll see them sitting there and they'll even be talking to you on an initial visit and you're just watching them and they're just in this rounded hunched position. Uh-huh, so, uh-huh. you know, I don't have the studies in that as far as like what they're specifically calling it other than, you know, I used to call it student shoulders because when we're in school, we're sitting hunched over all the time, but right. you're seeing it more and more often. And, you know, a lot of issues that people come in for that aren't necessarily an acute injury are tied into these postural imbalances and, and things that we're doing even if we don't notice it, you know, all day long. And so, um, you know, I always tell people a lot of times when someone lays on the table and when I start examining them, it's a good portion of people that are almost always similar presentation. And again, their symptoms might not all be the same, but it's a lot of this right-sided postural things that we do, whether we're sitting in our chair, using a mouse or hunched forward and typing with our thumbs. It's like, it leads to these patterns where, and, and again, that goes back to what I was saying before with new patients. I'm trying to explain it in ways where they can understand a little bit. But it's so common to see these same patterns that are arising. And cell phones, I'm sure, are going to be a lot more, they'll probably have a more definitive diagnosis down the road. <laughs> well, we've become a technological society and, mm-hmm. and jobs, our jobs rely on those. Sure. I mean, we're between a rock and a hard spot here in many times. Yeah. And I mean, when someone comes in and they say, well, what can I do to, ha- to stop this? I mean, it's not something where I'm like, well, don't go to work anymore, but <laughs> exactly. it is like helping learn that there's ways that you can be more conscious of your, of your posture and position. And obviously the increase of people using variable height desks makes a difference on people. But if you stand for eight hours a day at a desk, you're going to develop other postural things too. Right. So you know, without going too far into the specifics right now, as far as what I do long term with patients, a lot of that is within the education of like, here's some suggestions you can do. Here's some just 
being conscious and, you know, taking some of the things you're doing all day and then doing some rehabilitative things on the outside of those work things you're doing so that you can kind of balance a little bit more. Right. The Let's talk about the neck a little bit because that's mm-hmm. always people people get very weirded out. And I understand because the first time I came to you and you did my neck, there was this huge popping sound. <laughs> and I'll, I, I thought, well, okay, I assume that uh, he's done this before yeah. many times. So my head is not going to fall off my shoulders. And so let's talk about that because isn't that the most common thing that uh, people say is the noise when the neck is done? It is. And usually like when I have a new patient, that's usually the last thing I do. So that a lot of what I've done prior to that is explaining and, and telling them what to expect with, with care. So, you know, the sounds you may hear, it's obviously, it's not bones cracking. It's releasing that pressure of where areas are tight or restricted. So even with an adjustment, it's not always the intent to get the pop. It's more about mobilizing and, and just relieving some pressure that's there. So with that, you know, a lot of, you know, I I always joke, it's like, that's actually the easiest thing of my job is working on someone's neck because there's obviously the the protocols I go through as far as like evaluating and what to, what necessary for working on that. But, you know, it's sitting down, it's a very controlled movement and it's, you know, when people are tight or tense or not really resistant to it, there's ways of kind of getting through some of that muscle tension before you actually do the treatment. And as some people don't want me to do it. I just say, okay, fine. We don't have to do it. It's not right. necessary. I mean, I would prefer to, but I don't right. insist that they have to when they come in. It's more a patient choice. But as I said before, it's usually like when we get to that, I've already done quite a bit more other work so they can kind of know what to expect to some degree. What is an adjustment? Well, an adjustment is helping to restore mobility within a joint. And an adjustment does not just have to be at the spine. Sometimes we're working in where ribs attached to the spine. Sometimes we're doing extremity work too, but whenever we're calling something an adjustment, we're evaluating where there's a lack of mobility, where there's restrictions, where there's functional components that if we can get things back to a more neutral and balanced position, that can optimally, that can get the patient back to more optimal health. Right. So when somebody comes into your office and they're They've never had chiropractic uh, medicine before. So there's a lot of discussion, why they're there, what their lifestyle is, um, different things like that. And then uh, the adjustments, which is fascinating, don't take very long at all. Well, I mean, that is only a part of the visit, too. I mean, a lot of times when patients come in, yes, when we're actually physically doing the adjustment, that is what you could say is chiropractic specifically. But... To me, I think the patient visit is a lot more tied into spending time working on the soft tissue and addressing some of the reasons why there may be some restrictions at the actual joints we're going to be treating. So, yes, when we actually get in to do those specific adjustments, that doesn't take long. But I find that you get a lot better results if you're spending more time working on whether it's using heat, doing some stretching, doing a lot more just soft tissue massage to, to kind of get that body ready to be more receptive to the adjustment. That makes sense. Let's go back to uh, sports medicine. Everybody, I want to introduce Jackie Gonzalez. She's the person that uh, does all of our taping, and she's sitting right next to me. And she will be occasionally discussing 
on Mike uh, different things that have to do with the topics that we talk about. And I think Jackie wanted to talk a little bit about her husband, Freddie, and his experience with chiropractic medicine. Freddie is a marathon runner, and I think probably Freddie has been to a chiropractor on numerous occasions. Is that right, Jackie? Yeah, so Freddie actually has been to the chiropractor many times. So my husband's a marathon runner. Um, when we He did a uh, Boston Marathon a couple years ago, and when he came back, he had an injury. So his entire goal was to run a... Two uh, under 240 marathon, right? He ended up doing a 241, so he did great. Mm-hmm. But throughout the few, uh, past years, he's had a lot of injuries. And what I find interesting is the first time that he went to the chiropractor, because in the running and active community, it's something everybody goes to a chiropractor because they all need adjustments because they're running and they're doing that pavement and all this, right? And one of the interesting parts that Sherry mentioned earlier is about the physicians, the PCPs, and all, all of them working together with a the physical therapist, right? Mm-hmm. So my husband, actually, he didn't have surgery. Luckily, it was fixed. But, you know, the his PCP is the one that recommended him to go to a chiropractor, even though his friends had been telling him to do this. So his PCP is uh, Dr. Pasternak, which mm-hmm. we had before yeah. on the podcast. And he's like, you know what? Because Dr. Pasternak is an athlete as well. And he's like, you know, you need to go see your chiropractor. So I actually think he went to peak performance to go see you. Mm -hmm. And he loved it, you know. But it was a combination of things that he had to do. You know, he had to go to the PCP, recommend him to the chiropractor. And then he had to go to physical therapy because he had an issue with his glute. I don't even know what it was. But uh, it was it was great. So now he's a big advocate of a chiropractor as well. And he just, like, he goes once a month as well, just to get readjusted. But it's nice to see, like, the physicians working together at the same time because he also, you know, his PCB recommended him, his physical therapist is constantly, and he still need to go to the chiropractor. So it's nice to see that combination of mm-hmm. the doctors working together. And that's my favorite way to work with, with patients, too, especially athletes like that. It's I, I know what I can do to address some of the more structural components of things. And certainly I teach stretching, and I do more a lot of rehab work, too. But I also like to co-manage, and especially when people can have various, you know, whether it's getting massage, whether it's seeing a physical therapist, or whether they're they're choosing even acupuncture. There's a lot of different things that can help the athlete get back to their, you know, desired results and optimal performance. And chiropractic isn't the only thing, but I do feel like, you know, obviously that's what I do all day. So I feel like if I can get, you know, runners are my favorite patients to work on because they're they're motivated. And yeah, I'm a runner myself. I I don't run marathons anymore, but I have. And it's a lot of paying attention to what's going on structurally versus just running, you know. And if you're running through injuries, a lot of things can be fixed to make you have a lot better. Well, it causes more injuries is one of the things that I've noticed. So my husband was like, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then it's like, oh, you know what? My knee hurts now. Oh, you know what? My foot hurts now. Now I have, I don't know, all these different like things that were wrong with his joints. And I was like, you're killing me here. You just need to get healthy. But you're right. They're so motivated. They just want to keep on going. Well, and I think that also there's this sense that you shouldn't complain. I mean, you know, that, that minor aches and pains are something that you're just supposed to move through either that or take a few, a leave or Advil and be able to uh, cope with it. Yeah. But it's also... Sometimes you need to do something about it versus just assuming it's something you have to live with. And, you know, when you're dealing with with athletes that are running like for marathon distances, there's 
a, it's very taxing on the body. I mean, I work on ultra runners, you know, where they're doing 50, 100 mile races. And when you're doing treatment with them, I mean, for me, I, I, I don't just adjust their back. I'm adjusting, you know, the, the knee. I'm working on the feet, the ankles. There's a lot more structural things that can just mobilize and getting things kind of to where they're not so restricted and addressing some of these imbalances that show up, whether it's tied to more dominant side or favoring due to injuries. Well, and we're living longer. Mm-hmm. So as a baby boomer myself and senior citizens, um, as we're living longer, we get back pain. And so what are some of the what are some of the things that people can do about their back pain? Um, I know that it must be very common because you see all sorts of advertisements for beds. Take beds. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different types of beds, but they all say, we will take away your back pain with this bed or a pillow. Right. I think I asked you once about oh, a pillow, I... and I said, is there a certain pillow you <laughs> recommend? And you kind of looked at me, and I thought, well, that was kind of dumb. There's so oh, many pillows. No, I, I get asked that question constantly. What <laughs> what bed should I get? What <laughs> pillow should I get? And my answer to every single person is, I don't like to tell you what you should or shouldn't get. Number one, you get what you pay for, so expect to spend if a decent amount of money if you're looking to something that's going to alleviate your pain. Um, they make so many variations of pillows now, whether you, if you call yourself a side sleeper or a back sleeper or a stomach sleeper. And, the, you know, I tell people for that, too. I mean, there's not an ideal way. I mean, maybe they're neutral is what we're shooting for when you sleep. <laughs> but, you know, I'd rather people feel like they're sleeping versus like, oh, I, I can't sleep because I need to stay in this position because it's best for my back. I mean, having... It's it's funny because it's just I used to work in you know when you're in school you're working in other offices and so back then like there would be pillows that we they would sell and I personally don't sell any products in my office but I do like to just let people know that you know it's there's gonna be things out there that say this is the best one for your neck and it may not be and right. you gotta get out there and right. try for yourself and you know again it's I'd rather you getting rest <laughs> versus like. <laughs> trying to think that you need to lay on this pill that is so uncomfortable and you can't sleep. Right. What are some of the best exercises to do for someone for back pain, and especially when we talk about uh, everyone working at a desk, everyone working at a desk, hunched over their phones? What? Because that's not going to change. We know right. that. We're uh, going into 2020, and that's not going to change. Right. Well, there's a lot, and a lot of it depends on the motivation the patient has. You know, if you take someone, for example, who's sitting at a desk a lot and isn't as active or doing as much exercises, you know, I spend more time kind of teaching them how to use a foam roller, like how to get some postural things to work on to where they can be countering this flexion or hunch position that they may be sitting in. So that's something, you know, I teach a lot of stretches for glutes, hamstrings. There's more and more emphasis on teaching people how to do things like and call it planks, which is engaging your core and working on getting a little bit more abdominal strength. There's other things we call bird dogs. There's hip bridges. There's a lot of things that are some physical therapy aspects that can also be implemented in a chiropractic office too. And obviously in a podcast, I can't demonstrate those right now. But there's a lot of information about beyond just stretching of like trying to engage different aspects of muscles that are weakened due to some of these things we're doing all day. So... So let's go back to that um, that person who's coming in. They're new. You're talking about their pain um, and doing adjustments on them. Mm-hmm. 
How often do they need to see the chiropractor? How does somebody determine that? Well, I think a lot of that is determined on the business philosophical practice that someone has. I mean, there's not an exact protocol for that. I mean, I can, in my office specifically, when I see a new patient, I usually see them, their, their initial visit, we do the exam history and we'll do that adjustment that day. And usually I like a follow-up within a week. I mean, if someone's got more acute symptoms going on, I sometimes will see them a little bit. Like say if someone came in on a Monday and they were in quite a bit of pain, I may see them at the end of the week. But for me, I don't like to project how frequent someone needs to be. And a lot of my decisions based on treatment is tied into how they improve from visit to visit. Um, so, you know, when I have a new patient, that it's typically it's like over the course of a week and it may be another week after that if they're not seeing as much improvement. Sometimes I push it out to two weeks and you kind of help teach some things that they can be doing on their own so they're not just relying on you to do the actual treatment and expect to fix everything. There are some things where it does require more of a f f treatment plan, per se. Um, you know, I, I do some auto accident cases, and with that, you do kind of have to have a little more frequency because there's a difference of dealing with an acute injury, like, say, whiplash or a severe sprain strain. They need to have a lot more treatment to kind of get past that initial phase of the injury. Um, but for most patients that come in, I mean, I, I don't like to say, oh, you need to be here so often. You need... Like, I'll use you for example, you usually call me when you need me, right? <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I mean, I don't, it's not always what I encourage, but I also don't like to feel like people need to be pressured to come in. So, right. you know, a lot of that goes back to the education side of things where, you know, some people choose to see you once a month. Some people like to call me as needed. Some people are more frequent than once a month. Well, really I call you when I'm in pain. Yes. So, well, we might as well have this conversation okay. here. So would it be better if I didn't? If I came more routinely when I wasn't in pain, or is that appropriate for me to call you when I'm in pain? Well, again, it's it's person specific, and and for someone like yourself, I mean, I, I think you would benefit from more. I mean, for me, it's easier to do my job sometimes when people aren't coming in in the worst amount of pain they've been. Oh, in. he's yeah. telling me, Jackie, I need to yeah. go more routine. But no, it's it's something where again, I I don't like to just say that this is the way it has to be. It's it's education and and it's about, you know, maybe, you know, I think last time you saw me where you asked, should I be doing more pilates? And I said, right. "Yes, go get out there and do more things because you know, there's the difference between what's considered active and passive care, and you could certainly say that the chiropractic adjustment is more passive because you're basically getting worked on from someone else, right? Um, active is when you're implementing some of the things that you know could be more lifestyle changes or, or routines that you can do, whether it's daily or, you know, your husband, when he runs, he probably should be following a pretty strict stretching regimen and other things post-running right. so that he doesn't have these flare-ups because he's not doing the things he knows to do. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things that he's learned is definitely use his foam roller mm -hmm. and all these different little gadgets that we yeah. have at the house. I don't even know what they're called, but they're great because I like to use them when I work out for my sore muscles. But yeah, he stretches constantly at work every day because he sits at a job, he sits at a desk all day, and then he goes out running. So he's like, you know, he's like, I'm, he's constantly stretching. So yeah. using those foam rollers, I love them. And, and that's the thing, you know, one of my and one of the things I really enjoy about as you get to know patients, because you do get to know them really on a personal level, is teaching them things and teaching them reasons why they're hurting and understanding some of the anatomy of what's going on, but also, okay, this hurts, what should I be doing? Well, oh, that's right, I haven't been doing the stretches Dr. Stevenson taught me, 
or some of these things. I mean, there's so much information out there that if you did the research and were more active about it, that would probably not be such a necessity to get worked on. You know, I, I do sometimes like to see patients where they're not coming in with specific pain. In fact, like I said before, it's sometimes it's easier for me to just do my assessments and treat versus when everything's in spasm and so locked up. But it is a balance of teaching and also knowing that, yeah, periodically it's good to get someone to work on you. Well, and how much does stress have to do with chronic aches and pain? Well, it plays a huge role. I mean, a lot of, you know, from a day-to-day basis with patients, I'm I'm not just looking at, you've been sitting at a desk all day. I mean, sometimes you can get a lot of information from what's going on in their life that's playing a role in how their back pain is. And there's a lot of research out there about how there is such a connection to the mind, the body, and like the stressors that are going on that are causing these manifestations of pain. And it makes it challenging sometimes to just say, oh, and the chiropractic adjustment's gonna fix that. It's not, but it's sometimes it's helping kind of, it, 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 it's hard to say what comes first sometimes, I'll put it that way. Like these stressors that are going on, they can cause muscle tension and contraction. I mean, you know, when people say, oh, I carry all my stress in my shoulders. Well, yeah, you do. And what can be the result of that is that that tension can start to pull things structurally to where it can get that misalignment where an adjustment can help, but then it's this figuring out, okay, well, what else needs to be done on your end? Do chiropractors send patients for x-rays or lab? Are they, uh, yeah, I mean, do they do that? It depends on the situation. I mean, I'll, I'll just speak for myself because again, there's a lot of different philosophical sure. ways that people practice. I don't take x-rays in my office and I, I never have since I graduated school. Um, I can read an x-ray. Um, if I need an x-ray, I typically refer out. There's plenty of places places that I can send patients to get that imaging done. Um, a lot of times when I get to that point with patients, I also like to make sure that they've opened lines of communication with their primary care doctor or another specialist they're working with too. For one reason, from insurance purposes, it tends to be something that they can get more of an easier approval within their insurance care. Not to say insurance won't cover chiropractic x-rays. Like There's plenty of doctors that have x-rays in their office. Um, but I just find that it's it's something where it's kind of helping. An x-ray isn't always going to be what someone needs too. You know, it's, sometimes it's an MRI. Sometimes there's other imaging. Usually you have to start with x-ray to get right. that further along. And that's partially just kind of how the insurance process works too. And do most people on insurance need a referral from their primary care to come to a chiropractor? No. They can come on their own. Most <laughs> of the time you don't. I mean, it's it's something where it's written specifically in their benefits as far as whether there's a certain amount of visits they get per year or, um, again, every insurance is different. And it's and it's part of the learning process of owning your own business is figuring out how those work. It's true. Yeah, but, it's true. you know, right. I, it's it's usually something where if they, if they have health insurance, there is some chiropractic coverage there. So you've been doing this for 15 years, Dr. Stevenson, and... Uh, we'll probably do it for another 20, 25 years, I we'll would see. think. <laughs> it must be hard on you physically. It is. I mean, there's certainly days where it's it's challenging. I mean, in the last few years, I joke that actually work's the easy part for me these days because I have two young kids at home. And at least at work, I know it to, I mean, every patient's different, but I kind of can sort of predict how it's going to go. But it is balancing the amount of energy that I put in at work to translate that at home too, it can be a little more challenging there. Um, you know, you said 15, 20, <laughs> you, maybe you said 20. I'm, I'm thinking hopefully, I mean, I, 
where I'm at in my business right now, I've kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't see myself seeing as many patients as I see now, 10, 15 years from now, I'd probably expect to be seeing less just from a physical standpoint. It can be very demanding. So what would you like if you had a crystal ball? What would you like over the next decade for chiropractic medicine? How would you, where would you like to see it go? Well, I think one of the biggest things we run into when we're treating patients is this difference of what's called active versus maintenance care. And, and it's, it's challenging when people are relying on their insurance to come in to see you. Um, insurance companies don't want you to be doing maintenance care. They don't want you to be able to just come in and get worked on if you may not have an injury. Um, so I would like to see a little bit more opportunity for patients to seek chiropractic care, not just because they're hurt and they can only come in for, you know, a certain amount of time within a, uh, a specific diagnosis versus having a lot more accessibility to get that preventative side of care, which sometimes, like I said earlier, it's easier working on people when they're coming in just because they want to see what, how they want their body to function better and have more optimal results with their exercises they're doing or just not hurt at work. And sometimes that's not something you're going to fix over a month, two months of a certain parameters of what insurance wants to see there. So I guess the answer there is to have just the ability to kind of get it. I mean, I understand the limitations. They're not going to say, oh, you need, you're going to be approved to see a chiropractor once a week forever with your insurance. But I would like to see a little bit more options for patients to have that accessibility. Well, this has been um, very interesting, and certainly with 35 million people taking advantage of chiropractic medicine today, uh, that's only going to grow mm -hmm. as we have more stress in our lives, as we use our phones and we sit at our desks and we do all sorts of things. And then there's the sports medicine that you talk about that obviously is your love. Uh, anything else that you want to express to people as to why coming to a chiropractor is something that they might want to consider? Well, you asked before about like the first visit. A lot of times, I, you know, at least half my new patients have never been to a chiropractor. And one of the first things I tell them is, we're going to go slow. We're going to talk about what's going on. And it's not going to be as scary as you think it is. And it, and it is helping to kind of educate is a big part of that. So if you haven't tried before, it's not always something you need to wait until your back is at its worst and hurting so bad that maybe you won't get good results with chiropractic care. But it's something where at least seeing if there's ways to make your body feel better, there's, there's an option. Well, thank you. I've certainly listened today, and I know that I'm going to try very hard not to just come to see you when well, like I'm in like horrible pain. One way or the other. It's entirely <laughs> your choice. No, but. that's I, I got that loud and clear out of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for listening, everyone. Today we've been talking about chiropractic medicine. I want to thank Jackie Gonzalez, who's my uh, partner here in all these podcasts, for coming on uh, coming on and telling us about her husband, Freddie. That was interesting. Anytime. Anytime, Jackie says. And I want to thank Dr. Todd Stevenson. He's a local chiropractor physician and owner of Peak Performance Chiropractic. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. For a list of future podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast.